Hey guys, we're trying something new this October. We're going to collaborate with HF Pod and Under the Scales to bring you a month of podcasts aligned around a single theme. In October, we're going to be examining the end of Fish 1.0 with a particular focus on the October 2000 run. In the first week, you'll hear Tom interview a very special guest on Under the Scales while discussing the closing of the Fish organization. In week two, HF Pa will do an exploration of the tour and talk about the end of Fish 1.0 while hearing from fans about the tour experience. In week three, the Beyond the Pond team, that's us, will do a deep dive on the Phoenix Guy Forget while highlighting other bands connected to the jams theme. And in week four, we'll bring you a very special segment. All these episodes will be available on their normal feeds, so we encourage you to subscribe to all three shows. If this works well, And most importantly, if you all like it, we'll try it again. Once again, thank you all for your ongoing support of our show, as well as that of Osiris. Look forward to collaborating with our friends on a massive fish deep dive. Folks, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned into episode 107 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast which, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of getting a listener to listen to other bands. These are usually not jam bands because we love Fish. We are Fish fans. Sometimes the problem with Fish fans is they get a bit myopic. Neglect to see the forest with the trees, only listen to fish all the time. And that has to stop because they're great, but for Christ's sake, listen to something else. <laughs> exactly. We are here in our 107th episode, and I feel your proclamation there very heavily uh, as we are now on the other side of Labor Day. And I look back on the last three months and realize I've been doing a lot of anniversary fish listening. Mm. And today I was sitting at my desk and I was starting to like feel this itch of what am I going to listen to? I don't totally know what to listen to. Everything I feel like I'm listening to, I've been stumbling through. And I just started making a list of all the new albums that had come out and putting it all into a playlist. And I feel energized. You know what I mean? That feeling of like new, untouched music. I have no idea what this is going to make me feel, but I'm sure at least a handful of these records are going to blow my mind. So to what you're preaching, I am here to practice it today. I feel it very much, Dave. Well, it's kind of appropriate because in this episode, we really aren't going to be talking much about fish at all. No. This is going to be one of the most fishless episodes we've had on Beyond the Pond. Mm-hmm. Because this episode is a bit of a passion project of mine. We are going to give you, listener, a big introductory rundown to 1990s Britpop. Basically being the strain of music from across the pond from roughly 1993 to 1997. You will recognize some of the names of these bands that we are going to discuss. We're going to give you a history of the run-up to same, talk about pre-Brit pop, post-Brit pop, 
how these bands and songs make you and I feel. Are you suggesting that in episode 107, Beyond the Pond is going across the pond? (laughs) That was set up on a T, wasn't it? (laughs) Yes, I am very much suggesting we are going across the pond on Beyond the Pond. So some of the themes that we're going to explore in this episode include Cool Britannia, What's the polar opposite of grunge? And Dandy's Rule, okay? And I apologize in advance for any of the the British accents that I'm going to put on when doing parts (laughs) of this episode because I'm I'm just not going to be able to help myself. On that note, let's get this rip pop. Having a lawn is awesome. Maintaining it, not so much. It gets tiresome and expensive, and you should be enjoying it as opposed to constantly mowing it. That's where Sin Lawn comes in. Sin Lawn is environmentally friendly. There's no watering, no use of pesticide products, no mowing, it's very low maintenance, and you save money. Sin Lawn uses bio-based ingredients such as soy and sugarcane. It's made in the USA in the state of Georgia. They're the largest manufacturer and installer of synthetic grass. And they have USDA bio-based certification. It's the safest and cleanest turf available. Great for kids and pets. You get no muddy shoes, socks, or paws. Professional and cl- certified distributors and installers nationwide. You get a premium quality product, which is highly durable and UV stabilized. You get your free time back. You can enjoy your yard instead of working to maintain it. And you can have it in your yard where grass will not grow. It's green all year. It's really great for residential homes, playgrounds, roofs, agility, golf. You want a golf hole in your backyard and many more projects. So please visit sinlawn.com slash beyond. That's S-Y-N-L-A-W-N.com slash beyond. Get along you can be proud of all the time. Be proud of your neighborhood. Don't be that one guy in your neighborhood with the brown lawn who the neighbors gossip about over tea. Or even better, up your short game in a major way. 
Your golf buddies and your neighbors will thank you. Sin long. with our listeners and that we are middle-aged guys with beards. So we say to those listeners, how much could you save in one year by switching to Harry's? Enough to buy 26 cups of coffee in New York City? Enough for three deep dish pizza dinners in Chicago? Enough to pay six months of your Netflix subscription? How? Harry's delivers high-quality razor blades as low as $2 each, a fraction of the price of the leading brand and saving you hundreds of dollars over time. I used my Harry's razor this morning. I like the grip. I really like the scent of the shave gel it comes with. It's just high quality blades. I mean, I've got a beard, but I cannot countenance a neck beard. I've got to have clean lines. And frankly, that's what I get from Harry's. I get clean lines. Get a Harry's trial set delivered to your doorstep by going to harrys.com slash BTP beyond the pond. Harry's is a return to the essential. Quality, durable blades at a fair price. Just two bucks per blade. Cut out the middleman, manufacturing blades in a German blade factory that's been honing precision blades for a century. Harry's is super convenient, has all your grooming needs in one stop, and you can feel a little bit better about your purchase because 1% of all proceeds are set aside for nonprofit organizations devoted to helping provide access to better mental health care for men and veterans. To help support those who need it most right now, Harry's has donated a million dollars worth of shaving supplies to hospitals across the U.S. So listeners of Beyond the Pond can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com slash BTP. You will get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go. So go to harrys.com slash BTP to start shaving and saving today. And get rid of that neckbeard, guys. People don't like it. You think they do, but they don't. So anyway, Britpop, British pop music really kind of ruled my world when I was in high school. And all these bands got played on... Uh, MTV's 120 Minutes, and in some cases, they kind of crossed over to the MTV buzz bin that got played at more reasonable hours, like 7 o'clock and 8 o'clock on weeknights, and also began to rule uh, mid-90s alternative radio. So kind of, before we get to discuss the music, I just want to give a bit of a backstory as to where we were across the pond in the mid-1990s. Kind of the phenomenon of 1990s Britpop. It's probably best understood through the lens of uh, the mid-90s British celebration of youth culture that uh, became known in the press as Cool Britannia. So, this was kind of fashioned as a bit of a corollary to the 1960s swing in London. There was a renewed sense of British pride, which was driven by uh, the strong growth of the British economy in 1993, which sort of resulted in the resurgence of the defiantly British-sounding young pop and rock bands that would comprise Britpop, but also pop culture phenomena in general. You had the YBA, the Young British Artist Movement, 
I think among uh, the most famous being Damien Hirst, fashion designers such as uh, the self-styled British hooligan of fashion Alexander McQueen. There was iconic British movies like Train Spotting, which had a very, very Britpop soundtrack. And this was uh, the time of Hugh Grant, Four Weddings and a Funeral. And it all kind of culminated in 1997 with the rise of Tony Blair and the Labor Party. So, clearly, um, if you're a student of history in the Iraq War, the bloom of the Tony Blair rose has certainly come off. But he was only 43 years old and he was Prime Minister, and he really kind of tried to align himself with all of the Britpop luminaries of the era. He was uh, young and dashing, keyed into pop culture, and initially popular with the youth, and even kind of, uh, in that sense, Obama-like in some ways. And just for me, sitting at home in Connecticut from roughly 1993 to 1997, all things British seemed particularly fun and fascinating. I mean, even the Spice Girls, with like Jerry Halliwell and her Union Jack dress that she wore at the Brit Awards, seemed pretty cool and foreign at the time. Now... I mean, Britpop is less of a musical genre and more of a cultural movement into a kind of, uh, I guess, marketing tool. But if we're talking timelines, it can be traced from approximately 1993 to 1997. I'd argue in terms of popularity and quality peaked from 1994 to 1995 and really kind of draws upon the British pop music of the 1960s, like British invasion artists like the Beatles and the Kinks, the glam rock and punk of the 1970s, and the indie pop of the 1980s. And the result was very catchy, exceedingly well-produced music that kind of made, in addition to some incredibly indelible singles, very good top-to-bottom albums. I mean, like I was saying, this is all over the 120-minute show on Sunday nights I loved as a teen, and, but the lyrics and subject matter kind of also involve things that seem utterly foreign to me as an American citizen. And, you know, bands are also kind of resumed to, like, wrap themselves in, like, Union Jack iconography like, like the Who used to do. Whether or not it was intended that way at the time, Britpop was marketed as the antithesis to what had become the ugliness of American grunge rock. And, I mean, by 1995... We're not talking about like Pearl Jam, Nirvana, and Soundgarden, but more like Sponge, Seven Mary Three, Bush. You know, the second generation of dudes who kind of sounded like Eddie Vedder wasn't really good. I mean, ultimately, you listen to Britpop because it's catchy, it's bright, it's very fun, and contains significant degrees of depth in the full-length albums that are much more than mere singles and filler. I mean, also, some of the bands just fucking rock. Like, have you ever heard the first Oasis album turned up after you've had more than a few? You should. Yes. That's the best way to listen to the first Oasis album. <laughs> I think at one point, uh, Noel Gallagher was comparing himself to Blur, which we'll talk more about. And he's like, do you want the pansies and Blur? Or do you want to grab one of your mates with a pint and say, yeah, baby? <laughs> Um, one one thing I want to ask you about and and yeah. jump in on here because it's it's something that I really remember from this era that both aligns with Britpop and also like just kind of reminds me of the mid '90s in general. And I feel like we've gotten such like enough distance from the mid '90s that there's 
less nostalgia, less wonder, more like being able to explore that era from a cultural standpoint right now and like kind of what was going on within larger culture. Um, there seemed to be by like 1994, and I don't know if this was baby boomers reaching middle age or if this was the Beatles uh, uh, anthology um uh, documentary being released and basically like mm. kicking off a second wind of Be- Beatlemania. But there seemed to be in my youth at the time, a huge hearkening back to the 1960s and to this era of rock and roll creativity shared between Britain and America that seemed revived. And, you know, you could see this both in, early grunge, but later in Britpop, but also in, um, you know, the way that grunge bands were being embraced by Tom Petty, by Neil Young, uh, Bob Dylan's resurgence towards the latter end of the decade. Um, I'm curious, like what your perspective on that was at the time and, and is now. Well, I will say that the Beatles anthology, people forget, but that was a really big deal, I think. It was huge. Or it came out in 94, 95? Thanksgiving Maybe. 94, I have like incredibly okay. vivid, like right around, it was November 94, and I just, I remember going to Thanksgiving at my uncle's house and realizing like all of my cousins had also been watching this and had been listening to the Beatles nonstop for the last few weeks. And it's all we listened to for like four days. And just remember my dad, my, life. my dad got so excited about that because he had all the Beatles records in vinyl, having, you know, been like 17, 18, 19 years old in college and the Beatles were in their heyday. Right. And he got so excited and he bought it and he was just like, <clears throat> I wouldn't say he was crestfallen, but he was very disappointed and I guess it had the one bait track. Was it Free as a Bird? That was like yeah, long, they like long, long recorded it back then and then recorded it now, or they like updated it for the mid 90s. Right. And then was it on Beatles Anthology 2, the song Real Love? That was the bait track. I guess my dad just thought that it was like marketing, trying to resell him a bunch of stuff that was already in much better form. But the documentary that came out was a huge deal also. Okay. But I guess in terms of, um, yeah, I don't know about the Britpop bands being engaged by their peers. I mean, I always tend to think of like 10 years down the line with David Bowie talking about his reverence for like Arcade Fire and Secret Machines. Hmm. But I struggle to think of, I don't think Paul McCartney came out and like really embraced the Gallagher brothers. I, I could be incorrect about that. Certainly... I think probably Ray Davies, maybe he had nicer things to say about Blur because they were definitely heavily influenced by the Kinks. I know, I mean, kind of giving up part of the game here when we uh, get to talking about the band Elastica, but they got sued by uh, by their forefathers for sounding too much like Wire and or the Stranglers. <laughs> so I'm not entirely sure about that because I know... I didn't really do a heck of a lot of research into how like the Beatles and the Kings and the Rolling Stones felt about like what was going on. I mean, I, I do know that um, I know that Paul McCartney appeared on a Super Furry Animals song, and the Super Furry Animals were their first record could be considered Britpop, which came out in 1996. 
And then for their 2001 album, Rings Around the World, Paul McCartney was chewing celery and carrots as a percussion instrument on one of the songs. <laughs> that was seen as a big torch passing. And then Super Furry Animals never blew up as much as people would have liked them to, based upon Paul McCartney's endorsement. But getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Take me out tonight Where there's music and there's people in the young and the line Driving in your car I never, never want to go home Because I haven't got one anymore Take me out because I want to see people and I want to see life Driving in your car Oh, please don't drop me home Because it's not my home, it's their home and I'm welcome no more So in terms of the run-up to the 90s Britpop movement, um, kind of in addition to what we were talking about, uh, one does need to mention the decade immediately prior to the 1990s, the mid-80s, and the British dandies known as the Smiths, whose songs will be played at British pop music dance nights until the end of time. And I would argue they'd all, they will also be played in collegiate coffee houses until the end of time everyone in college has to go through at least one smith's phase yeah collegiate coffee houses and bedrooms of sad boys and girls forever yeah i just remember being told like when i was 20 years old that i had to really get into morrissey to really understand where music went in the late 80s and early 90s and um i didn't quite know why i listened to a lot of morrissey and I, i understand it now but I feel like you have to go through that at least once in college. Yeah. And uh, Stephen Patrick Morrissey and Johnny Marr were the epitome of the very British phenomenon of an utterly brilliant guitarist and endlessly charismatic frontman that were both way less brilliant and way less charismatic when they try to strike out on their own. <laughs> Other examples are uh, Ian Brown and John Squire from the Stone Roses. Richard Ashcroft and Nick McCabe from The Verb, Liam and Noel Gallagher from Oasis, who will hear about it soon. Um, you know, I mean, if you're listening to a music podcast like this one, you've heard The Smiths, whether you realize it or not. I mean, probably there is a light that never goes out, this charming man, or how soon is now. I mean, you know, all lovely and expansive guitar pop that is exceedingly British, exceedingly romantic, and designed for lovelorn teenagers to scribble lyrics into diaries stained with tears and or high school yearbook quotes 
Nowadays, Johnny Marr has basically been a, become an expensive session man for the last 30 years, while Morrissey has had a relatively successful solo career, though he's equally known for canceling tons of shows on a whim and just being a reactionary asshole with wacky right-wing views, while also being a militant vegan. Mm. But uh, just like there's people who can tolerate Billy Corgan, uh, guilty as charged because the first three Smashing Pumpkins albums are that good, Morrissey can still sell out theaters on the strengths of the Smiths' greatest hits and subsequently cancel those sellouts. That's right. I mean, Johnny Marr is fascinating. You could have like a, another podcast just about Johnny Marr. Like he, he contributed guitar to the last Talking Heads album. He was like, a full-time member of Modest Mouse for a little bit. He's had his own bands. He's just like kind of, he's almost like the Warren Haynes of British rock. And he just like randomly pops up on stage and contributes. And it's like, oh, hey, Johnny Marr, how you doing, buddy? But yeah, brilliant guitarist. Never was able to eclipse what he did in the Smiths. So from the Smiths, you get to the late 80s, early 90s. Manchester Movement, which is based around the Hacienda Club in Manchester, England would meld dance beats and fits full of ecstasy to 80s indie pop in which we've discussed on this very podcast before most of the mostly we discussed this way back in episode 11 where we tackled the very madchester sounding version of tube from powder night at the baker's dozen yeah key bands included the happy mondays charlton's uk primal scream and the stone roses who were uh, less of a dance band and more of a shimmering pop act whose debut album is among my favorites ever. If you want to learn more about Madchester, go see the movie 24 Hour Party People. Seriously, I've seen it about 26 times. Watched it last week. And um, this is kind of funny. While we're on the topic of the kind of charismatic idiot frontman and the brilliant level-headed guitarist who kind of... Uh, has to be his translator. Ian Brown from the Stone Roses like tweeted last week, sort of like, think for yourself, hashtag anti-vax, anti-this, anti-corona. And then the guitarist, John Squire, had to like tweet back like, well, he made that tweet under some duress. I hope he doesn't really mean those things because they're pretty stupid. So that's just your <laughs> prime example of the handsome jerk-off front man and the understated brilliant guitarist kind of trying having to bail him out very british phenomenon yeah i just envision um the guy who always ends up throwing a bottle of beer against a wall at some night uh or at, at the end of the night being uh, your front man and his his pal in the corner who uh, is kind of understated just like bailing him out every single time that's kind of how i felt when i saw oasis live yeah, like I actually, the Stone Roses had a few reunion tours. I saw them at Madison Square Garden in, I want to say, 2017 or 2015, and they were brilliant. It was just full on, everything you wanted to hear, people jumping up and down, like pumping their fists like they're watching, like you you see those shows of like Metallica playing like South America, and everyone's like jumping and pumping their fists in the air. That's what it was like. It was great. And that was like one of their three final shows. I think they can't stand each other anymore. But anyway, let's get to some 90s rip pop bands. 
know about you, Brian, but I could live without fish more easily than I could live without caffeine. That's kind of sad, dude. I know. I'm not proud of it, but that's my cross to bear. There's literal film over my brain until I have that swig that first cup in the morning, usually followed by four of the cups throughout the day. It's not a cheap hobby. Well, can I share some good news with you? Please do. This is where Grady's Cold Brew comes in. Order online and get their famous New Orleans-styled iced coffee delivered straight to your door. Just add water to their all-in-one kit. You get 36 servings of cold brew for less than a buck a cup. So what you're saying is that Grady's will end up saving me a ton of money, but also a ton of time. I won't have to socially distance and lie at the coffee shop because Grady's really like dispenses directly from my fridge. Already cold and completely customizable for my perfect cup. There's a literal bag of cold brew in my fridge that comes from a spigot. How cool is that? I am saying all of that and more. Grady's Cold Brew is independently owned and operated in New York City since 2011. Ready to give it a swirl, Dave? Mm-hmm. We'll get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code BTP20. All right, so what you actually heard leading in here was a Stone Roses song, She Bangs the Drums, second song off of their classic 1989 debut album. So of the bands we're going to talk about to discuss 90s rip pop, we decided to pick, um, basically, I kind of did a survey of friends, they decided on these five, if you're just going to nail down the essence, because um, we'll put together a playlist for you. But in terms of the five big players, you can't really talk about Nice Brit Pop without talking about Blur. And the songs we're going to eventually play from Blur would be Girls and Boys, and this is a low, both off of uh, their seminal 1994 album, Park Life. So, of all the 90s Brit Pop bands, this forest one was definitely the cutest, and the one which a direct line can be made to the kinks. I mean, if you like the Kinks of the Village Green Preservation Society, you'll like this band, because Blur clearly likes that album. Uh, originally, they were called Seymour, before um, the label head on the label they're on called Food, they decided it was an unmarketable name. So I think they gave them a choice, and they ultimately ended up deciding on Blur. And they kind of began as a halfway decent baggy slash shoegaze outfit with their debut album leisure pretty good record with some stone cold jams and she's so high and there's no other way and if you own the british version with the original track listing you get the song sing aka the dramatic piano dirge and train spotting soundtrack that i think was left off of the american and canadian releases because it was deemed too morose but not so morose not to be in train spotting Leisure's a good record, it's fine, but uh, kind of the Madchester, and to a certain degree, Shoegaze was on the way out, and uh, Blur had some bigger ideas. So they basically reinvent themselves as a uh, omnivorous and extremely British maximalist pop band with Modern Life is Rubbish, which their main influences really come into focus here. The Kinks, XTC, 
and of course Sid Barrett. The subject matter and the lyrics are decidedly British. Yes, the Portobello Road market where Damon Auburn buys sneakers in the classic ballad Blue Jeans is an actual place that you can visit and buy all kinds of knickknacks. It's also a bit of a tourist trap. And they haven't entirely abandoned the shoegaze stuff here, see Oily Water, but the ambition is something else. And there's Cracker Jack singles here in For Tomorrow and Pop Scene especially. Yeah, and Modern Life is Rubbish was kind of the start of a trilogy. The next record was Park Life in 1994, and the singles are catchier, the Kinks' influence is kinkier, and the celebrated title track is basically just a showcase for uh, the British actor Phil Daniels, you might know as Jimmy in Quadrophenia. He just spouts British witticisms like, you should cut down your park life, mate, and get some exercise. Huge singles in this record and Girls and Boys, End of a Century to the End, and the title track, but my favorite track, and the one which factors into the end of nearly every Blur live set, is the epic brooder, This is a Low. Kind of, um, this is a fish podcast, so think Slave to the Traffic Light, except sad. So, Park Lab is really one of the defining records of Britpop. I mean, it's a mission statement of sorts. It's excellent from top to bottom, but it's got huge singles. I mean, it's what Damon Albarn, the frontman, referred to as a loosely linked concept album involving several stories, the mystical lager eater seeing what's going on in the world and commenting on it. So this trilogy concluded with the 1995 album The Great Escape, a very good album which kind of shifts the focus in Park Life to the suburbs, and it's basically Park Life, the slightest bit weaker and slightly less interesting Think uh, the ill communication to Park Life's Check Your Head. Still awesome, and it's also significant for the, quote, Battle of Britpop, which we will discuss at greater length soon. And then by 1997, Blur guitarist Graham Coxon had been telling everyone how he was fascinated with Pavement, and Blur's self-titled 1997 album basically rips them off. So that was kind of one of the ends of the signifier of the era of Britpop. Blur began to look towards American shores once again. But first, before we go on, let's listen to uh, some of a little bit of Girls and Boys. And this is Low by Blur off of uh, the Park Life record.
So, dear listeners, you probably know who Oasis is, right? Guitarist Noel Gallagher, his brother, vocalist Liam Gallagher, and dudes. You want swagger? These fuckers have swagger in spades. The pride of Manchester, England. Oasis were working class blokes who whose one trick was to play imaginary Beatles covers extremely loud while doing enough drugs and sibling bickering to fuel several years of British music mag covers. Their first two records are flawless. And out of all the British pop bands, Oasis was the one that broke through the most in America because of Wonderwall, which you all know got huge support from MTV and their song Champagne Supernova, which closed out their second album, What's Story Morning Glory, was ubiquitous enough that in 1996, Tom Marshall got to sing it on December 29th that year. Wasn't that the sounds of hell? It was the sounds of hell, yeah. The sounds of hell, the uber demon. Oasis the, was the sound of hell. Tell us how you feel, Trey. It, it, it's, it's slightly <laughs> insulting because a year earlier... They played Shine by Collective Soul mm. uh, to muse about what would happen if just time never stopped. And Collective Soul, correct me if I'm wrong, they are no Oasis. No, they still make records. <laughs> oh, well, that that too, but like from a quality standpoint. No, Collective Soul is certainly no Oasis. <clears throat> but yeah, to say that Champagne Supernova is the sounds of hell... God, it must have gotten a lot of play in 1996. That's a, <laughs> that's, a gr- that's a great song. It's a great, great song. Did we say that the first two Oasis records are flawless? Because they are. Banger after banger after banger. Supersonic, Slide Away, Rock and Roll Star. It goes on. And we cannot possibly have a Britpop episode of Beyond the Pond without talking about, quote, the Battle of Britpop which concerned uh, the Oasis song Roll With It, which was the first single off Oasis' second album, What's the Story of Morning Glory, being released the same week as Blur's Country House, the first single off their Great Escape album. This was actually thought of as major news. Like, this would be on whatever the equivalent this was on, like, like on the BBC, like 8 o'clock at night. People really, really cared about this. And I mean, the bands at the time seemed to legitimately not like each other, but they're all bros now. This was August 20th, 1995. So, as it turned out, Country House sold 274,000 copies to Oasis's 216,000. It was billed as the Beatles versus the Rolling Stones, so Blur's song was number one, Oasis was number two, and if we're being honest... Both songs kind of aren't that great compared to the best of what uh, these bands were capable of. Kind of weak singles. So, the third Oasis album, Be Here Now, came out in 1997. Better than its reputation. Kind of sounds like cocaine. But it also uh, signified the end of Britpop in some ways. And Oasis continued to put out records for not too much good reason before finally calling it quits a few years ago as the Gallagher brothers' sibling rivalry got hazardous to each other's health. But in a way, they were kind of like the British Strokes. The first two records were so good 
they could tour on them eternally if they wanted to in most of the country and doesn't really care about what came after. Although uh, the Hindu Times and Lila are some pretty good jams off of the later records. I know um, Frequent Beyond the Pond guest Stephen Hyden tends to like disagree with me here. He has a soft spot for the Oasis album, Don't Believe the Truth. But for the purposes of a Britpop podcast, it's the first two Oasis albums in, its entirely, in their entirety. Then after that, your mileage may vary. So we're going to listen to Supersonic and Slide Away, both off uh, the first Oasis record, Definitely Maybe, and both incredible. Yeah. 
All right. So, quick question for you, Dave. Yeah. To muse off of as we're talking about uh, Blur and Oasis here to kick off the rundown of Britpop. And interesting thing that you had said was two albums that both Blur and Oasis put out in 1997 kind of marked the end of Britpop. And both seem to go in like two different directions, whereas Blur's self-titled record kind of is an ode to pavement and an ode to American grunge in a lot of ways. And Oasis's Be Here Now kind of is like this 1970s bloated cocaine-induced record where there's so much money, there's so much hype, there's so much ambition, but is it really ambition going into a record that I would personally argue is great? I think it holds up incredibly well 20-plus years later. Um, okay. What do you? What are your thoughts in terms of like where those two records splintered off, um, kind of how that directed, not Britpop going forward, but like British rock going forward? Like, did those have any larger impact in terms of like where uh, most British bands were going, or was it almost like that? That just was like a necessary means to an end for those two bands as they transitioned out of this kind of period of pop success. Well, with Oasis, I mean, Be Here Now was just everything they'd done before, just louder, longer, <laughs> and with more drugs. Like that first song, do you know what I mean? It's a great song. The projections, the production sounds like sticking your head into, into like a jet engine. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> in a way, it's like impressive how big and loud and distorted it is. It's a great song, but God... I mean, that record gets exhausted, but it's got good songs on it. And it also has, like, All Around the World, which is just this, like, blatant, obnoxious Beatles homage to, like, Magical Mystery Tour era stuff, where you're like, come on, this is this is stupid. <laughs> um, oh, subsequent Oasis records kind of just were more of the same in that successive records had two or three good singles and a whole bunch of filler, and kind of, like... Like if you go see Oasis at Glastonbury or any of like the big British rock festivals, you weren't going to hear those songs. Like that was when you made a mad dash for the porta potties, when they started playing like Mucky Fingers off of whatever record that song was off of. I forget. But um, as for Blur, Blur is far more interesting band than Oasis. I mean, the records they put out after. Like you said, now self-titled with song two, that's the big pavement-style record. And then the follow-up, 13, fascinating sound collage, beaten down, some end-of-rope dirges. Of course, that was the record where um, Damon Albarn had split with Justine Frischman, who's going to make an appearance in this podcast pretty shortly. Not as a person, but you'll hear about it uh, towards the end of this podcast. And then, of course, from there, Graham Cox left the group. Blur made Think Tank. I think what was interesting about Blur, I don't know how it speaks to, like, British rock in general, but Damon Albarn with Gorillaz, a solo record, Good, the Bad, and the Queen, and kind of subsequent Blur records like Think Tank, more recently The Magic Whip, he kind of almost added himself as kind of like a genius that they didn't realize that they had. Sure. Of course... Graham Coxon was a brilliant guitarist. 
Whereas a lot of the bands we had talked about earlier had like a brilliant guitarist and a front man who wasn't very effective once he left the band. Auburn kind of had staying power. Like he did some very interesting things. And I think in terms of lasting impact, Blur, the records after the Britpop trilogy are far more interesting than what Oasis did after their heyday. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think um, <clears throat> there's like, it's it's almost interesting because like Oasis was there's there's experimentation in, in some cases on Be Here Now, but to your point, it's louder and longer versions of what they did really well in compact ways on Definitely Maybe and What's Story Morning Glory, whereas Blur almost seemed to like foreshadow what you would see from not to this extreme, but like from like a Radiohead standpoint, from like that sort of experimentation within British music. Yeah, certainly 13, which I want to say came out in 1999. 1999. Yeah, 1999. Yeah. That definitely had some existential Tom Yorkie and Johnny Greenwood angst on it. Like, that had big songs and um, Tender and Coffee and TV, Trim Trab. Those weren't, like, you know, the same type of, like, big British pop songs. Nonetheless, they were still playing those to really big audiences. But with Oasis, I mean, they stayed together. They shed some founding members. They kept putting out records. I saw them tour with the Black Crows on the weird brotherly love tour with Space Hog. And I want to say 2000 or 2001. I kind of forget when that was. And there's Noel Gallagher solo records and Liam Gallagher solo records. They all kind of sound like B-Game Oasis. But the great thing about Noel Gallagher is that the man's a quote machine. He is by far one of the best interviews, most interesting, funniest quotes. <clears throat> Harkening back to what we talked about, Tony Blair, one of, uh, I guess, that night the election ran very late. I think Noel Gallagher went to Tony Blair and said, like, how did you manage to stay up to see the results? And Tony Blair leaned in and said, son, not the same way you did. <laughs> and then no guy goes like, oh, you got me there. That was a good one. <laughs> There's a YouTube clip you can find on YouTube. I forget exactly what you got to type in. But there's Noel Gallagher doing commentary on like late era, late era like Oasis videos. Like not the prime videos, like the videos for like the later record. He watches them and talks over them. He just says stuff like, what the fuck is this? Holy fuck. What the fuck are we doing? We are so fucking high. Just like, <laughs> he's really good at making fun of himself. I'm sure he's got, like, got more money than God. So, but yeah, in terms of the bigger picture, I mean, later era Blur might have kind of pointed the way towards some of, like, the post-Brip pop. Maybe some of, like, the Travis Coldplay, like, but even that's probably more so, like, Ben's there, Radiohead, sure. Blur, I think. All of which brings us to we got three more bands we're going to talk about. Segment number three focuses on a band from Sheffield, England that has been kicking around in some shape or form since 1978. That is Pulp. Yes, 1978. Frontman Jarvis Cocker was born in 1963 and started the band when he was just 15 years old. Got a confession to make. I've never heard the first Pulp album. 
heard the second Pulp album. They're just not that important and kind of have zero to do with what people think of when they think of Pulp. I mean, if we're being generous, we can say that uh, the song My Legendary Girlfriend from 1991 was kind of the first Pulp song that can properly be referred to as something something of a jam. But uh, Pulp in the Britpop story, for all intents and purposes, starts in 1994 with the classic lineup of Jarvis Cocker, Steve Mackey on bass, Russell Sr. on guitar, Candida uh, Doyle on keyboards, and Nick Banks on drums, all on the album His and Hers. This is the first pulp album in which you might hear songs at indie Britpop disco night, songs like Do You Remember the First Time, Babies, and Joyriders seriously cut a rug. And the one reason? Jarvis Cocker. Oh, Jarvis Cocker. When you think of a British dandy, you think of Jarvis Cocker. This dude is impossibly British. And prone to wearing thick horn rim glasses and tweed blazers with arm patches on stage. His lyrics are kitchen sink, slice of life vignettes about the working class that would appear to be written by the paragraph, not the line. He's simply one of the greatest rock and roll front men living or dead. So <clears throat> I highly recommend 1994's His and Hers. That's a great record. But it was the next record, 1995's Different Class, that cemented Pope's role in British rock history and is probably to these years the single best album that the Britpop era ever produced. So we had to talk about the song Common People. Sometimes I just take it for granted that if you're intelligent enough to listen to this podcast, you've heard Common People and love it as much as I do. If you haven't, it will change your life. There's anthems, and then there's Common People. I mean, it's probably the most perfect rallying cry in the history of rallying cries. I mean, half the parties I attended in college ended with drunk people screaming the song. Nearly every other song in different classes similarly good, especially... Uh, Laura Brannigan quoting Disco 2000, the song Underwear, and the super creepy voyeurism drama of I Spy. But uh, when Pulp did a reunion tour in 2011, after originally calling it quits in 2001, Cocker would often introduce common people by stating, if this is the only song that Pulp was remembered for, that's cool because it's a great fucking song. I have incredibly vivid memories of the first year I was in Korea. I taught at a school with a guy from Yorkshire. Big time shout out to Lewis Wright if uh, somehow you've discovered this podcast. Uh, we <laughs> spent the entire year. I taught him about baseball. He taught me about footy. Uh, I introduced him to fish, and he gave me a spin through every British group from Oasis, Blur, Elbow. He told me things about Radiohead I already knew, but he told me like in a British accent, so it sounded fresh, it sounded new, and it sounded even more important. But I remember we would go to these Western bars, as they were called, and they always had a digital karaoke machine, or a <laughs> digital jukebox, I should say. And uh, he would always put on Common People, like towards the end of a night, drinking away, and by the end of it, I was singing along with him, and it was just like a fantastic way to like summarize 
all these young people fleeing the recession that hit all of our countries to go to South Korea to live fairly cheap, but to party and have a great time on the other side of the world. So uh, I totally know what you're talking about there. It's a great fucking song. Would you say you guys were renting a flat above a shop, cutting your hair and get a job, smoke some fags and play some pool, pretend you've never been to school, then you never get it right because when you're lying there at night watching roaches climb the wall, you just call your dad. He could stop it all. Yeah. Never live like common. Okay. <laughs> Couldn't help it. So... After different class, the follow-up record, kind of beaten down, eerie, this is hardcore, came in 1998. This is another record that people said kind of signaled the end of the Britpop era, even though it was unlikely it was intended as such. Still a pretty great album, as was uh, their swan song, the lush, orchestrated 2001 Scott Walker-produced We Love Life. But without... Different class and common people. Your view of Britpop is incomplete. So we're going to listen to some common people and we're going to play Disco 2000. She studied sculpture at St. Martin's College. That's where I go to I. She told me that the tap was loaded. I said, my case on my room with Coca Cola. She said, fine. And then in 30 seconds time She said I wanna live like common people I wanna do whatever common people do Wanna sleep with common people I wanna sleep with common people like you What else could I do? I said oh, I'll see what I can do I took her to a supermarket I don't know why but I just started somewhere So it started there I said pretend you got no money And she just laughed and said Oh you're so funny I said yeah I can't see anyone else smiling Are you sure? You wanna live like common people Wanna see whatever common people see Wanna sleep with common people You wanna sleep with common people like me But she didn't understand And she just smiled and held my hand I went to the flagship of the shop I cut your hair and get a job I smoked some facts and played some Stop it, oh yeah You're 
Oh, it never did it Although I often thought of it Oh, Tadra, do you recall? The house was very small With wood chip on the wall When I came round to call You didn't notice me at all another 18 inning loss and a meaningless season for the Cubs. I am reeling today. Mmm. Sounds like you needed some get a little pep in your step, son. A little, little extra pick-me-up. I do. This is where Grady's cold brew comes in. Order online, get their famous New Orleans-style iced coffee delivered straight to your door. Just add water to their all-in-one kit and get 36 servings of cold brew for less than a dollar a cup. So wait, what you're saying is that Grady's is going to end up saving me a ton of money and also time. I'm not going to have to socially distance in coffee shop lines because Grady's dispenses directly from my fridge, already cold and completely customizable for my perfect cup. There's a literal bag of cold brew in my fridge that comes with a spigot. Do I get a division win this year? That remains to be seen, but there most certainly is a bag of coffee with a spigot in your fridge. Furthermore, Grady's Cold Brew is independently owned and operated in New York City since 2011. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code BTP20. All right, hope you uh, enjoyed those two pulp songs. Seriously, if you get nothing from this podcast, go get different class. Get it, embrace it, inject it. Inject it into your veins, and then when you are in London, you too can go to the Bar Italia and have a cappuccino like (laughs) I did and be amazed that you are in the place that inspired the last song on different class. I know I, I took some photos. I lost them. That was back in 2004. <laughs> Anyhow, next segment, 
We're going to talk about the band Suede, known to uh, Americans as the London Suede, because I guess they had uh, some copyright issues with some other band named Suede here that I am unfamiliar with. So whereas the previously discussed Britpop bands largely drew from um, the Kinks, Beatles, XTC branch of British music, Suede were, or I should say are, I think they actually still put out records, although not as frequently as they once did, infatuated by the mid-70s pouting, British pout, likes of David Bowie, Mark Bolan, of course, from T-Rex, Brian Ferry from Roxy Music, and Mop the Hoople. So British teenagers have always kind of had a healthy appetite for uh, like campiness. But man, oh man, suede frontman Brett Anderson was the campy, undernourished, pale, pouty, ziggy stardust acolyte of their wildest fantasies. I mean, the combination of Brett Anderson's impossibly cockney, high-pitched vocals and guitarist Bernard Butler's Mick Ronson-influenced crunch, coupled with the... Uh, Brett Anderson's ready-for-the-music tabloids pronouncement about his sexuality, kind of is he or isn't he, made for one heck of a gothic teenage sex and drug fantasy on uh, their self-titled debut album. I think even the success of uh, their initial 1992, 1992 single, The Drowners, was such that Blurred Statement Auburn was saddened that uh, their concurrently released song Pop Scene didn't perform nearly as well. So, I've got to confess that um, despite Suede's pantheon status and Britpop lore, I really don't know that much about them outside of their first album, which is kind of odd considering they had like the longest shelf life of any of the bands we're discussing and the largest discography. I mean, I know that uh, certainly the, the debut album, I'm told the follow-up record, Dogman Star, are canonical Britpop classics. I mean, about that song, The Drowners, if you're just like locked away in your room, you don't know what to think, you're kind of angry at mom and dad, then you hear this guy just go, Would someone give me a gun? Oh. I mean, it's it kind of had to rock some people's worlds. I love that song. So we're going to listen to The Drowners. And we're going to listen to So Young, used to excellent effect in the uh, Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, British County from a few years back, The World's End. Of course, being the same crew behind uh, the classic British comedy, Shaun of the Dead, in Hot Fuzz. Excellent movies, lots of great British music in those movies. So let's listen to The Drowners in So Young by Suede.
together now <laughs> gotta talk about elastica elastica was started in 1992 by justine freshman and justin welch both former members of the aforementioned suede we think freshman actually dated suede frontman brett anderson from a bit before eventually dumping him for Blurish Damon Albarn to make Britpop's defining tabloid romance. I mean, this Justine Frischman was a bit of a head-turner. Even uh, in 2000, Bob Dylan personally invited her to like some of his shows in London. <clears throat> I think she was honored, but declined the invite. I mean, I don't know if like Dylan invites you, you gotta go. So with Elastica... Their debut album came out right in the middle of the Britpop frenzy in March of 1995. And it beat Oasis' definitely maybe to become the fastest selling debut from a British band of all time. I think I held on to this record for about 10 years until um, the first Arctic Monkeys record. Whatever someone, whatever they say I am, that's what I'm not. Actually outsold um, to become the fastest selling British debut. I think that record actually still holds. So Elastica had one trick. You take the late 70s post-punk sounds of Wire and the Stranglers, you gloss them up, sell them to a new breed of British teenagers, largely too young to have experienced Wire and the Stranglers, outside of maybe their hip parents' record collections. Nobody knows the difference, right? Well, yeah. I mean, they were so good at it. They actually got sued for plagiarism by Wire and the Stranglers. Mm. Yeah, the riff from Wire's Three Girl Ramba basically is the introduction to Connection. The Stranglers' claim is much more diffuse. They all settled out of court. Yeah. I mean, you cannot... uh, It's a funny thing to get sued by your main influences. Like, she was... I mean, Freshman and Co. weren't shy about the Wire influence. I mean... Wire, I think, shockingly, is a band I don't think we've ever talked about on Beyond the Pond. And uh, the debut album, Pink Flag, that's that's canon. I mean, Pink Flag, Chairs Missing, that's a band that had lots of evolution throughout the 80s, and they still exist, still angry, still kind of going strong with a slightly different lineup. 
But um, Elastica's debut album is kind of like the first Strokes album. That it's it's just wall to wall bangers. It's got five awesome singles, most of which are actually released uh, before the album itself proper. It was huge in the MTV buzz bin. Actually, <clears throat> very successful record in America. It went gold uh, by December of 1995. But yeah, I mean, the song Connection, especially, I think Stutter was released to MTV first. But I mean, Connection, at least in the States, kind of came out at the same time the record came out. And that was, yeah, it was inescapable on, uh, on MTV. But... Um, eventually their founding bass player left. There were a few lineup shuffles to what was basically just a Justine Fishing project to begin with. And it took five years for the follow-up album The Menace to be released, at which point Britpop was kind of already effectively done for. And uh, the follow-up record sort of just disappeared without a trace. I mean, I think I listened to it once, which is 347 times less than I listened to the first Elastica record. I mean, even I think Frischman said in like an interview in 2013 that Elastica should have been a one-album project, and I think uh, for most of society at large, it kind of was, because I can sing almost everything off of the first record and nothing off of The Menace. So let's listen to probably the two most indelible singles off of Elastica, being Connection and Stutter, which is... One of the catchier songs written about um, a male partner's inability to, I guess you could say, get himself ready for the big game. Bye. 
Okay. Now, I guess before we wrap up, we should just kind of do a brief description of a um, discussion of post-Britpop. Kind of when I think of um, bands that came in the wake of the classic Britpop bands, you know, I kind of think of 97, 98 is when Radiohead really came into their own. Like, obviously, they had put out records in 93 and 95. But really, 97 was the dawn of OK Computer. 97 was when The Verve broke it really big with, like, Bittersweet Symphony and The Drugs Don't Work. Late 90s, you also had bands kind of with the Charlatans UK that were still around, uh, the Welsh band Stereophonics, Jess, and then from there... You kind of get to the bands that started ripping off Ben's era Radiohead. You get stuff like uh, bands like Travis. You get bands like Coldplay. Many of these bands still exist, but so are not so much Britpop as what's considered to be post-Britpop. I guess Doves in 2000, excellent band, could kind of be considered part of this wave as well. Do you think uh, anything like the rise of the Strokes and the white stripes and what was happening in America in the late nineties, early two thousands, specifically around New York that like feels catchy in the same way that a lot of these Brit pop bands were cat were like overtly catchy, but is coming from America, especially at like a very specific time in American history, rebuilding out of the September 11th, uh, um, terrorist attacks right. do you think that like bookends Britpop in the same sort of way that like grunge kind of leads into Britpop 10 years earlier sort of if only in the sense that the british music magazines which kind of drove a lot of Britpop just by always trying to one-up each other with different stories different cover artists i mean it was really a lot of Britpop was driven by the NME and Mojo and Select and Q and these like big British magazines that I would buy for like $13 at Barnes Noble because they all came with cool CDs. All those magazines totally shifted from the UK to Williamsburg, Brooklyn and the East Village. Really hyped the share of those bands. Like I know that certainly the Strokes, the White Stripes, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, all those bands are all over the British music press. Right. You know, it was a really big deal when the Strokes played like, like the Astoria in London for the first time. So I think, you know, in a way, kind of as a media construct, yeah, sort of like the shift went from like post-Britpop to like American Shores. And also, like a lot of Britpop, a lot of those bands, the Strokes, especially... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rapture, all those bands had amazing singles and burned really, really brightly for a few years. You could say like right. 2000 to 2003 kind of has like some parallels to Britpop and that they were all all over the press. Amazing singles, some very good records, just like fireworks going off in the distance. But, you know, a lot of those bands, Radiohead, very much still around. I mean, I think sure. once OK Computer hit, you could kind of predict that they would kind of rise above the 1993-95 Britpop releases and really, you know, become something else. Yeah, not a lot of the bands from that era or even subsequent bands from Britain could really match Radiohead's artistic direction. Like, it's really it was really hard. It was it was easier to make a 
uh, lighter, less introspective take on the bends. It was really hard to imitate OK Computer and almost impossible to imitate Kid A. But the bands tried. A lot of bands hired, like now Godrich, like um, the second Travis album, The Man Who, was basically like a kinder, gentler version of the bends. And it's a pretty good record, actually. I mean, Travis, I think... Yeah, it's a great record. I think Travis are still around in some way, shape, or form. I know, obviously, Coldplay, very Radiohead, even Jeff Buckley influenced at first. Still around. So, what we're going to do for this is uh, we're going to put together a Britpop playlist for uh, Beyond the Pond listeners that, I mean, I think we're going to have this probably separate from the Beyond the Pond Master Playlist. In addition to all the bands we talked about here, we'll include some um, other bands from the Britpop and before. Bands like Supergrass, Ocean Color Scene, The Divine Comedy, Edwin Collins, um, some of the bands leading up to it, like we talked about, like the Happy Mondays, Black Grape. Um, you know, we'll definitely we'll put some stuff together for you to give you kind of an overview of the lead up to Britpop, Britpop, and some of what came afterwards. So, hope you enjoyed this overview of such. What are the songs you played throughout this episode? What do we got? So, we featured Blur. We featured we played uh, Girls and Boys as well as This Is a Low. Our Oasis segment, we featured two rippers, Supersonic and Slide Away. Pulp, we talked about Common People. Just pour yourself a pint. I don't care what time of day it is. Just pour yourself a pint and blast that chorus, mm. as well as Disco 2000. Segment four, we talked about Suede. We played The Drowners and So Young. And we wrapped things up with Elastica, Connection, and Stutter. And I want to thank you if you got into the end of this. This is something I've wanted to do for a long time. I love British music. So a little different. We'll be getting back to the fish not-so-distant future, don't you worry. Just a reminder, we're on social media. You can find us on Twitter at at underscore beyond the pond, one word. Medium page, medium.com slash beyond the pond. We have a gigantic master playlist on Spotify, the Beyond the Pond podcast song playlist that has everything that we've, uh, probably over 600 songs at this point. We're going to try to make this playlist separate. Just a reminder, Spotify, of course, it's great for putting together a playlist, good for convenient listening in the car, or the subway, or what have you. But now more so than ever, these bands got to make money. If you hear something on Spotify you like, that's great. Then go into Bandcamp and buy the shit out of it. Publishing structure. So we've uh, done a little bit of weird stuff here the last couple of weeks. Uh, we appreciate you guys all following along with us. We put out an episode on a Thursday because Fish was doing their last weekend of dinner in a movie, and we wanted to uh, highlight Dick's and the Dick's weekend before that. Uh, we've got another one coming out here in uh, September uh, that we're going to be covering a jam I've been wanting to cover since the start of this podcast, and then we'll be uh, working some stuff in here for October and November as well. Um, so we're really excited about what's to come here. Uh, keep an eye out for us 
on Tuesdays, Tuesdays have absolutely no feel. Yeah, especially now that dinner in the movie is coming only once a month. Tuesdays are back to having no feel. <clears throat> so, would remind you, however, just because there's no dinner in the movie, YouTube is your friend. Go to it, type in your favorite band, a lot of stuff comes up. So, if you've made it this far, once again, thank you mightily. Come back in approximately two weeks. Probably be more fish and less Brit pop. We'll hold hands, we'll sing Kumbaya, and go beyond the pond. Beyond the Pond podcast is part of Osiris Media and is co-hosted by David Goldstein and Brian Brinkman and it is edited by Brian Brinkman. <laughs>